All right, if you get your worksheets out, we'll begin our study through the book of Hebrews. I'm calling this study infinitely better simply because the Greek word better or more excellent is the word that is littered across this amazing gift that God's given us called Hebrews. So no less than 13 times the author gives us this term better. So we're going to stick with it and spend the next however so long it takes studying through verse by verse. I was telling the staff and Ray earlier in the process of preparation that I had one goal for week one. And I utterly failed. And the goal was if I could just do the first six verses. Yeah, that's not going to ever happen. I'm pretty sure that the first six verses of Hebrews are six sermons. So we're going to get through like two and a half maybe. And uh, that's going to be as far as we can go. So let's set the stage a little bit with Hebrews. First of all, it's authored by... None other than the Holy Spirit. No point in having a conversation about who wrote the book of Hebrews. I've had a million of them, written papers on it. Uh, it's fun sometimes for us to sit around and have that conversation, but it's really pointless because we don't know. But we know the Holy Spirit did. And it is an unbelievable work of art. Now, this book... The way to understand this book is to look at it this way. Ask the question, well, what happens when Jewish men and women profess faith in Christ in first century Rome? What does that look like? Try to imagine the situation. First of all, their, their Christianity would have zero worldly advantage. By professing faith in Christ, it would only bring hardship upon them. No, no Jew was embracing Jesus to the delight of their family or their friends or their relatives unless they were already converted. Uh, it was insanity. Why would you do that? Why would you ever uh, put yourself in that situation? Why would you bring so much hardship and pain? By doing so, they would suffer persecution and would be subjected to both social and economic pressures. There was an extraordinary amount of pressure placed upon uh, a Jew who defected because Judaism was recognized by the Roman government. Uh, Christians were not protected under Roman law, and so it would cost them sometimes even their lives. And so you can imagine how this would go, that, you know, some, somebody would hear the gospel, and uh, this Jew would begin to think about how all the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus and, and begin to embrace the reality of Christ. And then people around them would go into damage control. Pressure would be placed upon them. Word would be spread in their circle that they were uh, defecting and that they were uh, leaving to go to this new uh, heretical cult or whatever it is, uh, you know, that 
and, and people would plead. They would plead simply in practical terms. Like, why would you do that? Look at all the things you're going to lose. Look at all the pressures you're going to bring on yourself. Look at how difficult this is going to be for your children and for your family and for your livelihood. And people aren't going to buy your goods or shop at your place or do whatever it is. I mean, it was, it was rough. It was really rough. Some of them would be tempted to turn back to their former ways and revert into the religious life of the old covenant under Moses. And this is what this book comes into. It comes into this world. It comes into this pressure. It comes into a room full of people who some of which are former Jews sold out to Christ. Some are Jews who have embraced Jesus but who are teetering. They're perilously teetering. The pressure has begun to mount on them and build on them. And so they're beginning to, to waver in their devotion and wonder if they made the right decision or not. And then there'd be those who'd be seeking, who'd be curious, who'd be wanting to know. And all of this is what the, the book of Hebrews is going to come into and address. Now, this book is a gift from God, not only to its original audience, but to all generations to follow who face persecution and hardship for loving and following the Lord Jesus Christ. This will be a tremendous encouragement to your faith as we walk through these pages. It'll be a tremendous eye-opening experience to begin to see the, the, the uniqueness of Hebrews. It's, it's very unique in its, in its New Testament uh, setting, and there's really nothing at all like it. It's going to cause us to think about things that we've never thought about before. It's going to cause us to ask ourselves questions we've never asked ourselves before. It's going to be wonderful. Now, no matter how difficult life in a fallen world may get, all a person needs to do, whatever their situation, just reach for their Bible, open up to the book of Hebrews. And you can be reminded of many things, but here's just a few things that this book will plant into your life for your blessing. The fact that there is only one who will not only sustain you in suffering, but empower you to face temptation while filling you with joy and peace that satisfies the soul. There's only one who can do that. And the book of Hebrews is going to hold Jesus up. And it's going to show us Jesus as opposed to all other gods and all other ideologies and all other ways of thinking and understanding or any sort of religious economy. It's all going to be put to the test against the Lord Jesus and him alone. Secondly, there's only one who will equip you to make the hard choices and captivate and fascinate your mind while supplying you with a never-ending abundance of resources to meet your every need. You see, the, the, the book of Hebrews is going to pull the curtain back a bit and, and show us the God of Elijah that we've been talking about on Sunday morning. So let us see this God who, who does things in such a unique and, and wonderful yet drastically unexpected way. A God who would who could do anything, but who would choose to provide by ravens and through a widow. Just think about that. As amazing as manna from heaven is, 
the God we see in Hebrews says, yes, I've done that. We're going to do something different. It's just tremendous. And the one is named Jesus Christ, who is the beauty and the glory and the majesty and superiority of the all-satisfying splendor of God. I want you to be reminded continually across this journey that Jesus is infinitely better than anything the world has to offer or anything that Satan may use to tempt you. That he has no weapon that can stand against Christ. There's no, once you embrace the beauty of the Christ, there's no There's nothing in this world that can pull your gaze away. It just simply cannot compete. There's no one in his universe. Hebrews is here to explain in glorious details why all of this is true. So a couple things for you to remember. Not only as you... Uh, as we walk together through this, but also as you will find yourself, no doubt, sharing the things that we talk about through this study with other people, remember this, that we have to understand that the preacher cannot persuade anyone of the truth of these statements about Jesus. I can inspire you. I can influence you. But I cannot persuade you. I cannot ignite belief within you. That is a job well beyond my capacity. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. All I can do is to explain what they mean by painting a picture of who he is and what he's done. But in the final analysis, the Holy Spirit has to give you ears to hear and eyes to see. And that's our prayer. That he would, as we study, give ears to hear and eyes to see. All right, let's pray. And then we're going to read the first four verses. Father, we bow before your perfect, inerrant, infallible word. The greatest possession we possess on this earth is this scripture. And apart from our salvation, it's the greatest gift we've ever received. And so we thank you for this living, breathing word that can activate inside of us like nothing else that's ever been or ever will be. And so, Lord, give us clarity. Help us begin to see. We want to step off on the right path tonight. So help us, Lord. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 1. The word of the Lord says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's far as I can go. Whoo. You get four verses in, you just have to stop, have a little revival in your heart, settle down, and then jump in. So let's ask a couple questions. We know you, you get an idea of the setting every week. I'll continually sort of, for these first maybe, I don't know, five or six weeks, sort of lay this out for you. But we ask a few questions. So is there a God? If we're asking that question, well, then we've got some options, but they're limited options. So either there is no God. That's an option. Or there is many gods, or everything is God, or there's only one God. There's your list of options. So to an audience that's trying to sort this out, and to an audience tonight who lives in a culture that is trying to sort this out, there, there is no more relevant study in the day in which we live, than this study right here. Because you live next door to, work with, talk to daily, shop at the grocery store with, people who are completely embroiled in this mystery. Is there a God? Is everything a God? Is there many gods? Who's God? How can you know who God is? All sorts of things. They're asking this question. So the next question is, well, how can we know God? If there is a God, how can we know? So we ask the question, has he made himself known? Is that something he's done? Has he revealed himself? Telling us who he is? And what he is like? And how we might come to know him? Now, if you can answer these two questions... My goodness, think about what more important questions could there be in the universe than these two questions? And yet, look at how the Holy Spirit opens the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It is an amazing thing just to stop and think to yourself, yes, there is only one God and he has spoken. Regardless of what he has said, the fact that we can know that there is a God and that he is one God and that he has spoken is an amazing reality. But it doesn't stop there. We're, we're told that this God has spoken at many times. Literally, this phrase, this, the, the way to understand this is in many parts. Meaning, the God long ago in the Old Testament has spoken in 
many parts. What are those many parts? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. In parts, right? We have all these parts that God has spoken, that he's revealed himself through, through the prophets. But he also spoke not only in many parts, he spoke in many ways, meaning by diverse expressions. We know from the Old Testament Scripture that God spoke sometimes in an audible voice or in a dream or in a natural phenomenon. And so this God has revealed Himself to His creation. He has spoken, and He has spoken in a, in a creative way, in a, in a, not just in one simple way at one simple time, but in many different parts and in many different ways to very different people that he created uniquely. And, and together, collectively, we have this assortment of parts and diversity of ways, and we have this chronicled in our Old Testament Scriptures. But in these last days, he has spoken definitively and finally in and through the revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, his Son. You see, that, that would have been... More than enough, if you stop and think about it. That was more than enough, but God never stops there. He goes, again, exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think. He doesn't just reveal himself in, in many parts and in many ways. No. He sends his son to become one of us. And then he's spoken definitely and finally. I always think about this, this speaking God sending His Son. And I use this illustration and starting point a lot about this point. I remember when I was a little boy, I, I had this beautiful, amazing, wonderful, just gift from above called a big wheel. It was the greatest thing ever. I mean, it was amazing. Just, I, I can't even begin to express to you how many hundreds of hours of sheer enjoyment I had. Just, you know, the first 10 pedals, you wouldn't even move. And then finally, you know, the plastic would heat up and you'd start to inch forward. But when you got going, and then you'd turn it and you'd slide around. And I mean, you'd just go back and forth and back and forth. But then it gets boring. And then you think to yourself, how can I spice this up a little bit? And you notice that in the, in the crevice, in the crack, the seam of the, of the concrete, down deep below the surface were some ants. And the ants would come up out of the ground and peer up over the top of the, the concrete and venture out just in time for me to run over and smash them. But then I'd have to wait for the ants to come back out. Alas, if I go into the house and I get some grape jelly and I put it on the ground around the hole, the little ants will be drawn up to the top so the big wheel can then 
smash them over and over and over and over. And here's the question. At some point, don't you think that down there in ant land, there were some ants and they would say, well, Uncle Marvin went up there and he didn't come back. And Aunt Susie went up there and she didn't come back. So I don't think we ought to go up there anymore because everybody that goes up there never returns. But you know what? They're stupid. They just keep coming. They can't resist the smell of the grape jelly. And suppose that you wanted to save the ants from demise. You could go and you could stand over the hole and you could say, Ants, please listen. Don't come up here because there's a psychopathic young boy that wants to run over and kill you. And the jelly's just a trick. Stay in the hole. To no avail. They keep coming and I keep killing them. But there is one way to save the ants. If you become an ant and you go down into the hole and you tell the ants in their own language, don't go up there or you'll die. You see, Jesus didn't just speak. God didn't just speak. He came and spoke our language. He came down in our hole and said, listen, that grape jelly up there is sin and it's going to kill you. He spoke our language. He told us what the only, the, in a way that we could know and understand and hear and respond where there's opportunity. I mean, think about that. He became us. He's not like us, yet he became us. In the same way that I'm far above the ant in every way, yet I become an ant and go down into the hole to tell them, don't do this. To which everyone like me would say, why would you do that? Because why would ants matter? They're just nothing. Just keep killing them. But if I love them. And so he goes down into the hole and he communicates to us in a way in which we can respond. So the point is, as wonderful and instructive and multifaceted as were all the ways in which God has spoken to Israel during the old covenant. He has now spoken in an even better terms, even greater clarity, and with finality in and through the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a whole new level. It's completely, utterly different. As wonderful and as grateful as I am for the Old Testament and as much as I love it and cherish it, if I did not know what every page and every story and every verse was pointing to, if I didn't have the, the picture to, to hold as I read and as I studied, if I didn't know what it was all leaning into and pointing to, what it was all foreshadowing, hmm, No. Jesus has done something unthinkably wonderful in becoming one of us and speaking to us with finality and clarity. So the ramifications of this truth are huge. Two in particular. We could have listed a hundred, but two. Number one, we're no longer to live in doubt about the character of God. What a praise the Lord. 
Because Jesus is the perfect embodiment and expression of his character. That's one of the things that, that you know if you've studied the scripture as I have. Is that in the Old Testament, in all of its wonder and splendor, it leaves you grasping. The character of God is, is still elusive. You don't finish Malachi and think to yourself, hmm, I know this God. I I sense what he would do in certain situations and how he feels about this or that. No. But when you finish Revelation, you got him. You know. It's there. Second of all, we no longer need to wonder about his will. Because Jesus is the perfect life, lived in complete obedience to God's will. And so, really and truly, as much as I'm not a fan of silly slogans and jingles and acrostics, the truth of the matter is, what would Jesus do is one of the most brilliant questions a person could ever ask. And all we need to do is open to the New Testament to answer that question, right? What would he do? Well, just ask yourself, well, what has he done? And how many times have we maybe taken for granted the, the blessing, the advantage, the unthinkable advantage that we have over the, our Old Testament saints, brothers and sisters, who will be quick to tell us in glory, oh, what it must have been like to live in that new covenant. So think of it this way. Simply put, the many times and many ways and many parts by which God revealed himself in the Old Testament were like numerous pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. But Jesus is the picture on the box. You've heard me talk about my newfound hobby. with my six-year-old who comes barreling down the stairs. Dad, will you put puzzles together with me? Okay. Six puzzles in her arms. Like, can we do one? No, we have to do six. We start with the easiest, and we slowly progress forward. And this is a pretty much a weekly routine. Down on the floor, putting together puzzles. I've never been a big puzzle person. I feel like I've been missing out. I'm really starting, it's starting to grow on me. But every once in a while, she throws me a curveball. Last week, you know, she's got, her, she's got her orb. We do this one, then we do this one. Then Suddenly, she materializes a Ziploc bag filled with puzzle pieces. I said, whoa, what is that? She said, it's the puzzle. I said, <laughs> we're not doing that. Where's the box? She said, that's what makes it more challenging. I said, no, are you crazy? We can't put it together without the box. How, where will we even? Basically, all you can do is here's the edges and here's the corners. After that, I don't know if it's a dog. I don't know if it's a flower. I don't know if it's a house, a church, a moon, a sky. But I don't know what it is. 
Come on, we can do it. Let's try it. I mean, it's a nightmare without the box. But if you have the box, then you can start saying, you can look at colors and you look at shading and you start to organize the pieces into different piles. Can you tell? Like I've started to embrace this thing. I'm not getting out of it, so I might as well run with it. But if you don't have a box, Jesus is the box. All the pieces we collected all the way through the Old Testament, suddenly we look at the box and go, oh, every time he says, you have heard it said before, but bingo, the light comes on. We go, that's what you meant. That's what that's about. Yes, now I get it. So you know when the scripture talks about the last days, the scripture's talking about the time between his first coming and his second coming. And so that entire period is the New Testament's rendering of the last days in which we're in now. But here's the thing. The mind-blowing, earth-shattering truth from the opening verse of Hebrews is that the God of the Bible is a speaking God. Like, I just can't get over that. I just cannot get over that. He's a speaking God. Think of all of the options at his disposal. Primarily, not saying or doing anything. He doesn't have to. He could have done anything. And yet his, his, his joyful, willing choice, act of love, is to speak to us. And so the principal way in which God speaks is clearly the written word of the Scripture. That's how we hear. Now let's make sure we're clear. It's no alleged revelation, no purported voice, no insight, no impression from God will ever conflict with the revelation of Scripture. If it does, it isn't God who's speaking. The Scripture is the plumb line. And so we need not um, relegate God to something that He has not said that He is or force Him into some corner that He does not belong in or by any means say what God can or cannot do. But here's what we can do. We can know that he will never, under any circumstances, in any way, shape, or form, contradict what he has said in his word. And so the word is always the determiner of everything. So why is Jesus better? Why is he better? Well, what makes Jesus better than Muhammad? What makes Jesus better than Buddha? What makes Jesus categorically in a league of his own? What is it specifically where would the writer of Hebrews reach down? Because there's, think of all the things at his disposal, but he reaches down and grabs a hold of one specific reality and then pulls it up out of the box and brings it forth. That he's been appointed heir of all things. That probably wouldn't be what 
you or I would have expected. You see in verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. So we need to stop for a second and think about this. Colossians chapter 1. Remember the Apostle Paul speaking to the churches at Colossae? Says he is the invisible. He is the, the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The definitive statement of the totality of his airship. Meaning that when Christ returns to this earth, he will take visible ownership of everything. He owns it. It's his. He created it. But he will take physical, literal, visible possession of all things upon his return. And so, therefore, he can say things that no one else can say. He says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who else can say that? No one else can say that because you cannot say who will inherit what unless you are the owner. Unless you are able to give or grant that privilege. See, Jesus can say this because... The earth will be his to give to whomever he pleases. Yes. He'll take possession of all things. Now listen. You have to stay with this and think about this. Think about the fact that Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 to say the spirit... His spirit within us, it bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, what does that mean? How easy is it for us to not grasp how wonderful it is to be a co-heir with Christ? So the principle is Christ inherits everything by grace. By grace, he makes us co-heirs together. He doesn't have to. He certainly shouldn't, but he does. He makes us co-heirs together with him that we might share in his possession and rule over the whole creation. So it's all his. It's not just enough That Jesus becomes one of us and crawls down in the hole to tell us about the grape jelly that's going to kill us so that we can then uh, hear the truth and be warned about what we are unable in our own strength to. I'm just imagining somebody who came in later is listening to this online going, the grape jelly. Yeah. Well, what is he talking about? So he becomes one of us and he goes in and and we're unable to, to, we have no solution to our own problem, no cure, no way to save ourselves. He, He saves us, so he saves us, he redeems us, he forgives us, but he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He then adopts us into his family, making us co heirs with Christ. Now, just think about this for a second. 
You deserve hell and condemnation. You get utter grace and total forgiveness. I impute my perfect record to you and take your broken, sorry record upon myself. And then beyond that, I adopt you into my family and make you co-heirs with my beloved only begotten son, Jesus, who, by the way, owns all things. And you will one day reign and rule with him that this this moment in time down in a hole worrying about grape jelly getting run over by a big wheel is going to pass and you're going to come up to a glorious reality and live in a, in a way you can't even imagine. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. This reality should transform how we make use of what we have. Our time and our possessions, our wealth, our opportunities, our influence. We should be people who live and steward the things that we have in such a way as every the decisions that we make, the way we think about things and feel about things ought to all be leveraged in the reality that we are co-heirs with Christ. Why would you cling tightly to the trinkets of this world? They're nothing. They're nothing. They're nothing. You have an unfathomable wealth awaiting you. Everything you can possibly imagine at your fingertips. And this little window, this brief moment in time is merely our opportunity to steward the little trinkets that we have for his glory. And then, like a vapor, it's gone. And for a million times a million times a million years, we'll bask in the glory of his presence live in the perfection of his creation as he intended, free of all the bondage, free of all the, the trials, free of all that. So why is he better? Because he's heir of all things. He's the one through whom God created the world. I mean, he should be heir. So the writer of Hebrews says that he's heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Meaning he has every right to be heir. He created all. Of course, it would only make sense that he would inherit everything. After all, he created everything. And so the Lord Jesus is better because he's the one through whom God created the world. Now, remember, the world was created how? By the wink of an eye, by the wave of a hand, by the, the thought of a mind, by the word of the speaking God. And so when we, when we walk into that inaugural moment into the, the gospel of John, we're immediately confronted with the reality that in the beginning was the Word And the Word was God and the Word was with God. That it's the Word. It's this God who speaks, who is the... He becomes the Word. He's, the, he's 
He becomes it. And so every day, I want you to understand something. Every day, you have the opportunity to open up your Bible. And every time you open up your Bible, it's as if he's coming down to you. You understand that? He's coming into your world. He's coming in. And he's saying, hello. And he's speaking your language. And he's relating to you in your context. He, he's becoming you right there in the Scripture. You see, when we say that he created the world, we, 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 we think small. We think just far too small. Too, too small. See, Jesus created the whole universe of time and space. And every single solitary particle, molecule, atom, quark, proton, neutron, electron that exists. And on and on it goes. You see, when, when we say that God created the world, we, we start thinking about, you know, the, the creation in its final form. And that's true, but that's insufficient. What we need to think about is, the creation itself. In other words, think about the reality that Jesus didn't assemble the parts that already existed. He called them into being out of nothing. See that no one, no one will ever, ever has and or ever will ever create something out of nothing. No one, only God can do that. There is nothing and then there's something. And so what we do is we think in human terms because that's all we can uh, normally understand. And so when we say God created that, we say, well, look at that, that God created. But what you have to understand is that we create things all the time. But what we do when we create is we assemble but what God does when he creates is he makes the things that we assemble and whatever the thing's made of, he made that. And before it was that, he made that all the way down to the smallest little part. He made all the pieces and then all the things that are assembled. And so all the thing that we see, but he made everything we can't. He made it, all of it. That's not the way we create anything. That's how he does Every piece, every particle, every raw material, everything. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, the scripture says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It says glory. We look at things and we say, You made those. Jesus is better because he's the truer and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. You see, the Old Testament is the story of the failure of people in their own strength, in their own wit to do the things they ought to do. It's the consequences of, of, a, 
of a dark yesterday. It's the ongoing struggle of, but then the new covenant opens up and dawns light that shines into the darkness that says it eradicates the old. It eradicates the, the old Adam is shoved aside and the new, greater, truer, better Adam comes on the scene who doesn't fail in the garden, who, who erases the curse of Eden. And then he imputes his record to us. He's the truer and better Isaac, who was not just offered by his father on the mount, but was actually sacrificed for us. You see, a ram didn't get hung in the fence when Jesus carried the cross to Calvary. There was no substitute. He was the substitute. He became the substitute. There's no... Isaac was a jigsaw piece. Jesus is the picture on the box that helps us see. Oh. You see, for, for generation after generation after generation, people ask the question, what kind of man would take his son and gather up some wood and lead him up a mountain and build an altar and tie him up and lay him on it? Who would do that? And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, I will show you. I will show you. He's the truer and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. See, he wrestled for us. The blows that we deserve, he took upon himself. And we walk freely away with the wounds upon our pride of the grace of his love and mercy. Jesus is the truer and better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed him and uses his new power to save them. The Joseph who, as we read, we wonder who would, why would a person remain faithful when everything they do goes wrong? Why would a person have hope when there doesn't seem to be any reason to hope? And yet he continues on and continues on. And then he, he, he sits in a position of power and authority. And he's able to not only to provide for and to care for and to save the lives of the very people who betrayed him. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And he shows us the fulfillment of that reality. As he's mocked and beaten and cursed and spat upon. And the king, through his power, saves the people, the very people who betrayed him. He's the better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant.
You see, the people would run in their horror to Moses. And they would plead with Moses, please go to the Lord and beg the Lord to repent to relent and Moses would go before the Lord and the people would wait patiently and they'd watch Moses and they'd, they'd, they'd hope and they'd pray and they'd see what would happen and Moses would come back and deliver the news of their fate and Jesus comes on the scene and he says I'm ushering in a new era, a new covenant by which you can now Come boldly into the throne room of grace, that the, 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 the inner sanctum where God dwells, where for generations men in fear and trembling would, would slowly walk in after, after weeks of consecrating themselves with ropes tied to them so you could pull their bodies out, not knowing what would happen when they entered in. The writer of Hebrews comes along and says, through Christ we boldly come directly into his presence that when we pray, we're in his throne room before his seat, looking upon him that he hears us, that he knows us. That we're granted unfettered access. No one in the Old Testament could have ever dreamed such a thing would ever exist. Jesus is the truer and better Job the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for his unfaithful friends. As Job just has calamity after calamity piled up on top of him, and the, and the Bible continues to tell us of his righteousness and his faithfulness and his goodness, and as we sit and peer and scratch our head and, and sweat comes from our brow and we're trying to understand what is happening here, why is this going, and then is the very people that he leans to, that he looks for for his encouragement, his very friends and confidants, his own wife, they turn their back upon him. They have no mercy. They blame him. But he carries their suffering anyway. The crowd chants Barabbas. And Jesus faithfully intercedes. The very people that he called friends, that he knew, would turn their back upon him. He's a better David, whose victory became ours, even though we never lifted a stone to help him. You see, the book of Hebrews is going to show us all these things. We're going to see this, this picture of the Lord Jesus high and lifted up, that he's the one who gains the victory. But if you think about it, as David goes forth and slays Goliath, who are the recipients of that victory? The very people who mocked him and berated him for even going in the first place. The very people that told him to go home, leave us alone, shepherd boy. You can't wear this armor. You can't do this. Are you crazy? Don't you see who the enemy is? And then he goes and he defeats the enemy. And who's the recipient of that? Those very people who did nothing. Nothing. They stood and watched as he single-handedly went on their behalf, just like us. He's the truer and better Samson. 
crushed under the weight of the wicked world to conquer our enemies and save us. The picture is of Samson sent to deliver at the end of his life. Physically marred. And yet in his death, he frees his people. He takes down the enemy by taking down himself. It's a shadow of the great one to come. He's the truer and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. We're the ones who were brought in. We're the ones who are granted access. The least likely, the least deserving, but it's us. And then lastly, we'll see that he's the real Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death can pass over us. The picture is of a people who are in bondage and captivity, who have no no hope of freedom, no possible way of getting themselves out of the situation that they're in. And as God shows himself mighty, the people are to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house so the death angel passes over. And what you have to realize is that as the sun cracks over the horizon that morning, and as people arose to the wailing and the lamenting to the world's largest funeral service, as death is everywhere, and the people of God arise to see that the angel has passed over them, and the blood is up the side of the post, across the top and down. And then Jesus, bloody, stands, arms spread, bleeding from his head across the top and both arms down the side. His own blood across the doorposts of eternity that we might enter in. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king, the true sacrifice. There's no one that rivals him. No one can do what he has done, but no one would do what he has done. It's beyond his capacity to do, and you have to begin to ponder and meditate and think on the reality that he did. There's a lot of things I can do, but I probably won't do. Jesus, who can do all things. That's amazing. But what's really amazing is that he did. It's what he did. He's the the true lamb, the true light, 
the true bread. All pictures from the Old Testament to help us just shine into the the darkness of our current reality. And in the end, what we see is the Bible is really not at all about us. It's about Him. It's about Him. So when we begin to grasp the gravity of the Jesus of the New Testament, the New Covenant, the, the, the grace in which we've been granted, the opportunity in which we have to know and understand this amazing God, trust me, it will change the very countenance upon your face. People look at you and say, Hey, there's something different about you. What's going on? Something good happened to you? No, I just been thinking about Hebrews. I'm just happy. I'm just joyful. I'm just grateful. Because that's my God. That's my God. And once we know him, all these things that aggravate us, all these things that, that try to bark at us and and chew at us and bite at us and try to distract us and pull us away. And they start to lose their power. Because next to the radiance of this Jesus, who cares? <laughs>